You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. If you will, I want to invite you to go with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. As we do kick off this new series uh, through the book of Ecclesiastes, which is one of the most beautiful and profound and dark books in all of the scripture. Um, it's a book that actually has meant a whole lot to me over the last season of my life, and I think it's going to mean a lot to us as a church in this season of our lives. And so um, I do want to say this before we read this passage together, uh, that uh, one of the things God really convicted me of over my sabbatical was that um, he has called me to be a pastor to this church, and that means that whenever I teach, it's my responsibility to share a word for this people in this time. Um, my job is not to um, preach to those who listen on the podcast. It's not to preach to other pastors who may listen in from other parts of the world, which do happen to listen to what we're talking about here or whatever. But, but God's called me specifically um, to teach to this people in this time, in this place. And to help me do that uh, more, hopefully, effectively, um, what we started last week, and we're going to do it every week, is on Wednesdays at 12 p.m., um, we are going to invite members of our church to join us uh, here in our building. We're going to have sandwiches and chips uh, for you. And so if you're interested, uh, basically what we'd like for you to do, if you have the time, is create space to basically read through this text that I'm going to be preaching the following week, um, to pray through it, and then just let's ask the Holy Spirit, what is it that you want to say to this people um, this week? Does that make sense? Um, it's, a, it's an attempt to help me do what I believe God's called me to do as a pastor. And so if you're interested in participating in that, just let me know or let Heather Watson know. Uh, she's one of our ministry assistants, and, and we can make sure that we have you a seat and enough food for you. I think we had seven people last week uh, that came and participated in that and just excited uh, to try to hopefully continue that rhythm. So with that again, good morning. Good to see you. I invite you to stand with me uh, for the reading of God's Word. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. I'm going to read verse 1 through verse 11. I'll pray and then we'll dive into it. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its feel of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there's something new. It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generations, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. You guys excited about some Ecclesiastes? (laughs) We'll see if we're still excited at the end of the message. So uh, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I love the honesty 
of your scriptures. It makes me feel less lonely and less crazy. Help us to receive this as you want us to receive it. God, I confess my temptation in a text like this is to somehow uh, be silly and lighthearted because I want everybody to leave impressed with me, and I feel like that probably won't happen if they're not smiling and laughing. And um, But God, that's just not the tone of every text in the Bible. Um, we just need to receive this word as you want us to receive it, and that it'll be something that's for our good and your glory. It's a cross, let me pray. Amen. I want to see a show of hands. How many of you in here have ever seen the movie The Hurt Locker? The Hurt Locker? Several of you? Uh, that is an intense movie. I think it actually won Best Picture or Academy Award for Best Picture in 2010. Had a female director that I actually think won well, that Best Director, first female director to ever win that. But it's a story of a bomb defusing and disposal unit um, led by William James, who is played by Jeremy Renner. And though the whole movie is powerful, it's actually the ending of the movie that I remember the most. Um, because in the final scene of the movie, um, James finally finishes his tour in Iraq. He's back home. He's with his wife, his newborn son. And you're just like, oh, okay, everything's going to end happily ever after. But it's clear that he's struggling with life. He's struggling just with kind of the everyday, ordinary stuff. And in this final scene, he's about to be deployed back to Iraq against his wife's uh, objections. He actually chooses to go back to Iraq. But she sends him to the grocery store, and here he is in this very bland and boring store with a thousands of different options of cereal that frustrates him. Um, there's these fluorescent light bulbs and the, you know, the, the shelves are well stocked and people are pushing their carts and they're smiling and they're polite. And if you're watching this, I mean, the absurdity of the moment is just palpable. How can someone who has just experienced what he has experienced ever function in normal life again? And what exactly is normal? I can, who is normal? Um, these are questions that all of us at one time or another are going to have to wrestle with in a fallen world. Because of our own hardships, because of our losses, because of our own battles we have to fight, we're all going to be faced with hard questions in life. Questions like, what exactly am I doing here? Like, in the end, why does any of this stuff that I'm even doing actually matter? Um, if you've ever wondered that, the book of Ecclesiastes is for you. Ecclesiastes is for people who have suffered or have watched someone they love suffer and therefore have asked questions like this. What really is the meaning of life? Why is there so much suffering if God is good and in control? Why is there so much injustice? Does God even care? And is life really worth living? I love the book of Ecclesiastes because it's a book for people who are no longer content with Sunday school answers. Anybody in here tired of Christian cliches? Yeah, Ecclesiastes is for you. It's a book for skeptics and those who are possibly even a little bit cynical. For those who they are now well aware of the fact that virtue is not always rewarded. That sometimes good people lose and wicked people prosper. I would say Ecclesiastes is also for people who are weary. For people who are just constantly on the go. Running, chasing, toiling is one of the favorite words that we'll see come up over and over again by this author. I wonder if you know anybody like that who's always toiling, always on the run, always chasing, always going. Someone who is so busy, they never even stop to ask, 
why am I working so hard? Like, why am I running so fast? Ecclesiastes is also a book for those who have had their expectations crushed, which is exactly where some of you are in the room today. Your expectations have been crushed by a spouse, maybe by your own kids who have gone wayward. It's been crushed maybe by a pastor who has let you down or a boss. Some of you have had your expectations crushed by God. When you started following Jesus, you thought your life was going to go one way, And it's actually gone a completely other way. And so today you sit here and honestly, maybe you have a smile on your face, but on the inside you're disappointed. You're discouraged. You're frustrated. And you need to know Ecclesiastes is actually for you. This is a book, as the pastors know, I've wanted to preach for the last three years. Um, I'll put it on the preaching calendar and then I'll remove it. I'll put it on the preaching calendar and then I'll remove it. Part of that is because I like the book so much I don't want to preach it. You don't really probably understand that if you're not a preacher. But another reason I don't want to, or I've not wanted to preach it in the past, is because um, most books of the Bible have a positive function, but Ecclesiastes has a negative function. Like, this book is not here to build you up, but it's actually here to tear down everything you ever thought you knew about life in the world. Uh, Eugene Peterson had this to say about the book of Ecclesiastes. He says, Ecclesiastes is a John the Baptist kind of book. It functions not as a meal, but as a bath. It is not nourishment, it's cleansing, it's repentance, it's purging. We need Ecclesiastes because we need to be scrubbed clean from illusion and sentiment, from the ideas that are idolatrous and the feelings that cloy. This book is a rejection of every arrogant and ignorant expectation that we can actually live our lives by ourselves on our own terms. Put another way, Ecclesiastes is here to make you feel weak to make you feel vulnerable, to make you feel needy. And if you're like, why in the world would I ever want to read a book like that? Because that's the only way that you can enter into the kingdom of God. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, in the most famous sermon ever preached, which is the whole sermon is about human flourishing. How can you experience the good life? How can you be happy? How can you get joy? How can you get contentment? And Jesus starts the whole sermon by saying, blessed are they, the Greek word there is makarios, which means happy are they, Happy are they, blessed are they who are, first line, poor in spirit. Want to enter into the kingdom of God? Want joy? Want contentment? It starts with you being bankrupt and saying, I can't do this on my own. I I cannot walk with a swagger anymore. I've tried all this. It doesn't work. And out of desperation, I finally look to Jesus. Ecclesiastes is here to help you get there. So this book is not going to be an easy pill to swallow. I'll just warn you. There are times we're going to go through this book where you're going to start feeling emotions maybe you haven't felt in a long time. You're going to start getting a little uncomfortable. There's times you're going to feel sad. There's times you're going to feel angry. There's times you're going to feel afraid. And I want to encourage you to resist the temptation to try to like weasel out of that or distract yourself with your phone or move somewhere else. But we, we have a hard time sitting in emotions that God wants us to sit in at times, which are there to tell us something that God's wanting to tell us. Um, This book is not going to be easy at times, but here's my promise to you. If you will stay with it, if you will take these words to heart, if you'll apply them to your life, here's the whole point of this book. It's meant to show you the key to human flourishing. It's here to help you move into a position where you can not only survive, but actually thrive in this world, no matter what is happening around you. Okay, That's the point of this book. And so with no further ado, let's actually dive back into our text. We'll look... Starting in verse 1, 
And here's what we read. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Now, let me just stop there and say this. Traditionally, Jewish and Christian scholarship have concluded that Solomon is the one who wrote this book. They read this first line and they say, okay, uh, he is the teacher. The teacher is the son of David, king of Jerusalem. And they say that must be Solomon because Solomon was the son of David. He was also a king in Jerusalem. Um, therefore, right, he's the author. But you need to know there's another side, there's another group of scholars that say, actually, no, this book was written hundreds of years after Solomon, and there's no way he could have actually written this book. Um, and so some would say this is an autobiography, but others, like Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, would say, no, this is actually what's called royal fictional autobiography, which was a, a very common form of literature in this day. And basically, the, the way I can explain this is... Think about our president, Joe Biden. Um, let's think about he dies, and then 200 years from now, somebody decides, I want to write about Joe Biden's life, about whatever wisdom and insights he had, whatever he learned. And royal fictional autobiography is them choosing to write in first person. So they're writing as if they're Joe Biden. They're not doing that to trick you, because everybody would know he's been dead for 200 years. And so some say that's actually what's happening right here in the book of Ecclesiastes. I share that with you just to say this. Throughout the rest of the series, I will try to mainly refer to the teacher as the teacher. I probably won't say Solomon, or I won't say this person or that person. Whatever, I actually tend to think he's Solomon. But here's what I want you to hear. It doesn't really matter whether it was him or it was not him. The point that all scholars come to is this. Ecclesiastes is meant to be read as Solomon's personal memoir. It's meant to be read as his journal entries, as an autobiography about the most extraordinary person you have ever met. Uh, This is a man, as we're going to see in this book, who is wiser and more powerful and more influential and successful than you and I will ever be. And so here's what I want you to understand. If there is anybody who is qualified to tell you how to live your 75 years on earth to the fullest, it's this man. Because he really has, we're going to see, experienced it all. Um, Just look with me at chapter 1, verse 16. I'm going to read a few verses just to kind of highlight for you what I just said. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 16 the teacher said to, I said to myself, look, I have increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. So this is a man who would say, I'm, I'm the wisest you've ever met. Uh, he goes on to say in chapter 2, verse 7, if you look down with me, I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I had massed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem, as well the delights of a man's heart. Verse 9, I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. And then look at verse 10. This blows my mind. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refuse my heart no pleasure. That is an amazing verse. Like, you've never met anybody like this. I mean, look at that line again. I refuse my heart no pleasure. That is a startling line. He he says, not only do I have access to any pleasure I wanted because I had so much money, but as soon as I desired it, I got it. Like if I looked at it, I was like, man, that, I think that would feel good or that would taste good or that would whatever. Like I didn't deny myself. I went after whatever my heart desired. So this is a man, when you think about these verses, who had more pleasure, more power, more popularity, more possessions, and more proficiency than any of us will ever have. He is successful on whatever chart or whatever standard you use. I'll put it this way. 
whatever mountain you're trying to climb right now, the teacher has already been to a mountain much higher. And the point of Ecclesiastes is he is now going to climb down from that mountain to show you what he learned is at the top of the place that many of us are trying to get to. And what exactly is it that the teacher has discovered? Well, look with me in verse 2. This is actually the whole theme of the entire book of Ecclesiastes. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. That word meaningless is going to show up over and over again, and it's actually not a very good translation. This comes from the Hebrew word hevel. Uh, It's a word that's going to be used 40 times in Ecclesiastes. It's only used 33 other times throughout the entire Old Testament. 40 times here alone it'll be used in the book of Ecclesiastes. And though often it can be translated like here we see meaningless, your Bible might say vanity or useless, But what all scholars agree on is a far better translation is when he says everything is hevel, what is he actually saying? He's saying everything is smoke. Everything is vapor. I saw one teacher who was teaching on this and literally got up and began to smoke a pipe while he was teaching this. And so, um, you know, to prove a point. I don't know, I guess I could have had Adam come and do that, but I don't know how to smoke a pipe. Um. This is what the teacher is getting. That's the picture you need to get in your mind. When you see the word hevel, when he says pleasure is hevel, power and popularity and wisdom is hevel, what is he actually saying? He's not actually saying that nothing has meaning. He's not saying your job is meaningless and, and your family is meaningless and pleasure is meaningless. He's just saying it's all really short. He's saying life in general is short. It's elusive. It's like smoke from a fire. If you think about smoke from a fire, you can see it, you can feel it, you can somewhat smell it, right? I mean, you you know whenever you're around smoke, but here's the thing. Smoke is not something you can hold on to, right? Right. The more you try to hold on to it, the more frantic and more crazy you're going to look. Like, like, like smoke is here today, but gone tomorrow. As Robert Frost once put it, nothing gold can stay. Power. Pleasure, wisdom, acclaim, you name it. You're going to maybe get it for a day, but it's going to quickly vanish. Which means there are things in the world that when you get them, they can provide you with some temporary form of happiness. But like smoke, he says, trust me, I've been there. It's eventually going to fade away. And remember who's saying this. It's not like I'm saying this. Like if I said this, I, I, what do I know? I'm not the wealthiest man you've ever met. I'm not the wisest man you've ever met. I don't have more toys than all of y'all have, right? So if I'm saying, oh, it's all vanity, it's all like smoke, you're like, bro, you just haven't got enough stuff yet. But here's a man who has more than you'll ever have. Here's a man who's experienced it all. He's been there and done that. And now he's coming back down the mountain and he listened to me. He says, even if you can get to where you're trying to go, and by the way, you probably won't ever get there. But even if you could get to the top of the mountain, even if your kids could get that D1 scholarship, even if you could get the ideal spouse or have the ideal kids, even if you could get that raise or that promotion or you could win that race or win that trophy, even if you could move into that new house or in my, in my, you know, shoes, pastor that growing church or whatever it may be, whatever's at the top of your mountain, he says, I've been there and you want to know what's at the top of it? Hevel. It's nothing more 
than smoke. And therefore, whatever it is you're working so hard for, whatever it is you're striving for, you need to know at the end of the day, it will not give you the joy or the contentment or the fulfillment that you think it will. You've heard me share this illustration before. Maybe one day you guys can help me think of a better one. Until then, I'll just keep using that. But, you know, one of my favorite artists in the 90s was a guy by the name of Moby. Don't judge me. I liked his stuff for whatever reason. It just resonated with me, you know? And so, um, and in the 90s, he, he won like the most prestigious award that a musician can win. And he tells a story in an interview of a podcast I was listening to where he said, after winning the award, he went to the after party and it was at like the tippity top of this hotel in Barcelona. Like you had to get a, a, a like a, an elevator, like with a security guard that took you to another elevator. I took you to another elevator. It was crazy. And at the top of this, there were just three rooms that were reserved for the people who were up for the award that Moby ended up winning. It was him and one room, Madonna and another, John Bon Jovi in the third room. And then at the end of it, they all kind of threw this party and there's all these celebrities and there's these women and he, you know, he's got all this food and all this drink and popularity. And everyone's patting him on the back and he says, if the window would have been big enough at the top of the hotel, I'd thrown myself out. I would have killed myself. And the interviewer's like, Why? And he said, because I had worked my life to get to the top of that mountain. And when I got there, it was smoke. It was heaven. It did not do for me what I thought. And I thought, if I've worked my whole life to get there and that didn't do it, then I might as well kill myself. This is what the teacher is trying to prevent us from doing. It's the same mistake he's trying to keep us from making. He says, it's all I'm telling you, it's heaven, it's smoke. And so in, in verse 3, he goes and he asks this question. He said, well, then what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? And that is an answer that he will give over and over throughout the rest of this book. And what is the answer? Nothing. There's nothing to gain. When it's all said and done, listen, guys, what he's going to say is your work doesn't work. It will not give you the fulfillment and the satisfaction and the security and all of those things that you are longing for. And what's going to happen, especially as you get to midlife, and Adam knows about this stuff way more than I do from the counseling world, you're going to begin to realize that and you're going to hit a wall or you're going to experience, what do we call it, a midlife crisis? Is that, I'm thinking that correctly? You're going to experience a midlife crisis and you're going to say, what's it all about? What am I going to do? And you're going to try to make, well, what's going to happen is, is when you experience this discontentment and this disappointment, you're going to try to cope with that in some unhealthy way, mostly. And so for a lot of us, it's not just only drugs. Drugs could be it. Porn could be it. But for the majority of us, it's just going to be trying harder to be better. It's going to be working harder. It's going to be compile more wealth, buy more toys, or eat healthier, work out our bodies more, win more awards. And the teacher says, I'm not saying that stuff's necessarily bad, but you just need to know it's all grasping after the wind. It's all trying to get control of something you'll never be able to control. It's elusive. At the end of it, you're going to get to the top of the mountain. He said, take it from me. If you want to learn the hard way, you can learn the hard way, but I'm trying to save you from learning the hard way. When you get to the top of the mountain, let me tell you what's there. Again, there's no gain. It's heaven. It's all smoke. Well, thanks for coming this morning, everybody. We actually could stop right there, and that would be enough for this week. Like, let's just let that sit, and let's ask ourselves, do we really believe that? But I'm not going to stop there, because the teacher didn't stop there. He actually goes on, and he knows that there's a temptation in all of us to say, oh, well, actually, you know, I just need something new. 
I need a new job. I need a new spouse. I need a new house. Like, that's what I need. I need a, I need a change of scenery. Like, that's what's going to make me happy. He knows that's our temptation. And so he gives us this little poem about nature. And if you look, he starts in verse 4. He says, generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries. I would circle that word, hurries. And it hurries back to where it rises. That word hurries, when you study the original word, it implies this vigorous activity that leads to chronic weariness. It, it signifies being constantly busy but never actually making any progress. You wake up the next day, And there you are in the exact same place that you started, just like the sun. Verse 6, the wind blows to the south, it turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever returning to its course. So you go to the wind, you say, hey, wind, what you doing? What you doing there, wind? What's it going to say? Just blowing. What are you going to do tomorrow? Just blow. What have you been doing the last thousand years? I've just been blowing, man. That's where Bob Dylan gets his line, I believe, blowing in the wind. Just, uh, here we go. Just doing what I've always been doing. Favorite line is probably verse 7. All streams flow into the sea, and yet the sea is never full to the place the streams come from where they return again. That's such a silly line. I mean, who in the world would ever continue to pour into something whenever you know it's never going to fill up? It's never going to actually, you're never going to arrive. He says, well, that's what a lot of us do. We're like that river that just keeps pouring into the ocean. And it never fills it up, never gets to where it needs to be. He then says in verse 8, all things are wearisome. I would say so. More than one can say, the eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its feel of hearing. He says life can be exhausting. Verse 9 What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Wait a minute, Jared, going to the moon, that was new. iPhone was new. Vaccine's new. He says, actually, is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? No, it was already here long ago. It was here before our time. You're like, what is he talking about here? Well, the teacher is not denying innovation. He's just saying there's nothing new under the sun that's going to help you break the cycle of your dissatisfaction. If there's nothing new under the sun that you can do that will finally make you feel like, I've arrived. So is going to the moon, was that a new thing? Yes, it was new in some sense, but there's still all kinds of uncharted territory that we're trying to get to. Was the iPhone new? Yeah, it was. But it wasn't new in the sense that it kind of finally gave us what we need. There's another phone that's always coming out, a better option. The COVID vaccine, that was new. And I I took it, by the way, I'm not against the COVID vaccine. But what happens? You take that vaccine and you're still living in a world with disease. There's variance, a variance, a variance, a variance. And just like it's always been, we're going to struggle with all of these things, no matter how much we feel like we keep progressing. Here we are again, like the sun, waking up, same place. And so whenever he says nothing is new, what he's, often, what he's saying here is that what this life can often feel like, if you'll be honest, is like running on a treadmill. Anybody ever here ran on a treadmill before? I ran on one just this past week at uh, Anytime Fitness. Shout out, Kyle Lane. Um, and uh, I think I ran a mile, and I ended up in the exact same place. I mean, I'm sitting there, I'm sweating. 
I'm not trying to beat my, my personal record, which I did, but I still ended up in the exact same place. And the teacher says, that's a lot what life is like. You never really make any real progress. There's no real gain from grinding your fingers to the bone because at the end of the day, guess what? You're going to end up in the exact same place with the exact same problems that people have been facing since the beginning of time. And, by the way, verse 11, one thing that is certain is you will die, and when you die, nobody will remember you. (laughs) So when it's all said and done, just like the people who are buried out here in Linwood Cemetery, who at one point had family who cried at their graveside and cared so much for them, just like them, one day you're going to be buried, and people will be there, hopefully at your funeral, but within a matter of time, thousands of cars will drive by your headstone, and no one will ever give a thought to your name. So, this is what life is like. Um, We can pretend that it's not, but this is what life is like. And by the way, it's not just what life is like for the secularist who doesn't know God. This is what life is like for the Christian and the non-Christian. So, here's the question before we end. What do we do? Like, if all of this is true... And it is. How are we to respond? We just to quit our jobs, just to sit around on our couch and eat Doritos and just watch Netflix. Sounds good, but actually, he'll say in chapter two that's meaningless too. Like that smoke. So it's like, no, that's not the option. So, what do we do? Well, it's going to take the entire book to answer this question in its entirety. But I believe a good next step for us as a church is to begin to embrace the reality that whatever mountain you're climbing. It's not going to do for you what you think it is. To face the fact that no matter what you accomplish, no matter what new experiences you gain or how much money you get or how many likes you end up getting on Facebook or whatever else it may be, it's never going to be enough to ultimately give you what you long for. Guys, this is something that I struggle to believe. I'm not teaching this message because I have arrived and I'm like, man, I believe this, to be honest. Uh, I was thinking about this this morning. This is something I believe 50% of the time. But the other 50% of the time, I'm like, eh, I'm not sure. Like, maybe I'm going to figure something out that Solomon didn't figure out. Um, and this is a word I've really needed to hear. This past week, you know, our church turned nine years old on Sunday. And just like on my own birthday, I like to reflect on my life and where I've been and where I'm going. I do that with the church. And, and, and you guys know this, like, and some of you are there with me. I've been, I've been sad as I've thought about what's happened, not just at our church, but churches across the world because of COVID. Um, you know, I was listening to something the other day where someone said that uh, the average church is still missing a third of their regular attendance before COVID. So a third of the people still haven't returned. That's probably pretty close to where we are, somewhere around that. Um, and that's been sad to me. But here's been my temptation this week. My, tempt- my temptation has been to begin to believe that if we could just get back as a church to where we were before COVID, and I'm talking about numbers, because that tends to be the way as pastors we measure success. If I could, we could just get back there, then I'd be happy. I wouldn't be sad anymore. I'd be fulfilled. I would be content. And you know what's wrong about that? Is whenever we were there before COVID, I wasn't content. Like when we started the church, and, and, and I know like this doesn't relate to you guys. Like You guys aren't pastors. I'm just trying to share with you my own experience, and hopefully you can relate it to your experiences. 
When we started the church, I thought, you know, if we could just get 75 people, like I'll be happy and content because that's the average size church in Arkansas. We got to 75. For those who knew me, was I content? No, you can say no. I wasn't. You know I wasn't. And so it's like, oh, we get to 100, triple digits. Wasn't content. Get to 200. That'll do it because 85% of churches in America never break the 200 barrier. Then I'll feel like I'm somebody. I've accomplished something. You get the 200? No. 500 is what we need. Halfway to 1,000. We get to 500. Doesn't do it. You know, Easter before COVID, we had 680. Oh, that, okay. That didn't do it. And what I'm just trying to say is this, like so many things that we look at, we think if I could just get there, then finally I'll feel like I've arrived. And what Solomon, what the teacher is telling us is actually when you get there, you're going to discover it's smoke. It's elusive. You may experience a temporary hit of satisfaction or a temporary hit of happiness, but it's going to leave you. It's going to go away. And this is what he is trying to do. The first step is to help us face that reality. And listen, guys, that feels a little bit heavy, doesn't it? But do you realize what he's trying to do? He's trying to keep you from killing yourself to get to a top of a mountain that's never going to do for you what you think it's going to do. He's trying to save you from pain. He's trying to help you move from thinking that there's something under the sun that can fulfill me to finally, instead of looking under the sun to things that will never actually satisfy you, to look into the one who is beyond the sun. To the God who alone can give you what your heart desperately needs. And this is how he actually ends the book of Ecclesiastes. In chapter 12, verse 13, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but it's the way he ends the whole thing. He says, after basically, and we're going to see this over the next few months, after basically telling us over and over again, the stuff's not going to satisfy, it's not going to satisfy, it's not going to fulfill, it's smoke, it's vapor. He finally comes to the very end, and in chapter 12, verse 13, He says, now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. I was talking to Heather this past week, and our ministry assistant, and she was like, why didn't he just tell us that in chapter 1? And it's because he knows we're so thick-headed that if he says it in chapter 1, you're going to say, check, got it, got it, next. And he knows it's going to take at least 12 chapters to finally, hopefully convince us that what he says here in this first week seriously is true. And then out of desperation to go, as we said in Sermon on the Mount, from building my life on me and my little kingdom to seeking first the kingdom of God. That's what he's talking about here when he says, fear God and keep his commandments. You see, what the teacher's trying to do here is he's not, he's not trying to depress you. He's trying to rescue you. He knows that we're like my little kid who kept running out in the street because that ball looks so fun to play with. He knows that he needs, that we need a parent to pull us out and say, that is going to kill you. And if you keep running out to give us a little spat, and I'm sorry if you don't spank your kids, just whatever, put them in timeout, whatever makes you feel better. He knows we're going to need this amplified a little bit to how serious this is. Again, not to depress you, but to rescue you. To rescue you and to rescue me from a life that says, this is all there is, so you better get while the getting's good. To rescue us from the American dream. To rescue us from vain pursuits and selfish ambition that at the end of the day, listen, is going to leave you on your deathbed with nothing more than regret. 
And so to put it simply, if you were like, what is the writer of Ecclesiastes trying to do? He's trying to fight for your joy. He's fighting for your joy. And if that seems far away from you, if you're like, well, I don't feel any joy. All I feel is disappointment. All I feel is frustration. This whole thing seems like a pop dream. Well, I would say hang with us throughout Ecclesiastes. But also what I would encourage you to do is to make sure today that before we end that you do what we try to do every single week, which is to fix your eyes on Jesus. The greater preacher king who had more wealth and more wisdom and more power than any of us will ever have. And yet rather than Jesus keeping it for himself, what did he do? He left heaven and he descended down the mountain. And he didn't just tell us, hey, 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 don't lose your soul for the sake of gaining the world. He didn't just tell us that, but eventually after descending the mountain, tell us that to give us wisdom, he eventually climbed back up a mountain. And he went to the cross, and at the cross, the Bible is clear that Jesus would die for you and me. He would give up his wealth and his power and his glory so that through his death and ultimately his resurrection, he could rescue you and me from the vain anxieties that often eat us up and the selfish ambitions that lead us down a path of destruction. See, Jesus knew when he came here that there was nothing under the sun that would satisfy. But rather than obliterating the world, he died for it. He came and he gave up everything for you and for me so that now when we trust in him, the promise from the scriptures is that not only can we be made new, there is some new things under the sun. Jesus actually makes that promise. I will make you new. I will give you a new heart, new desires. And we can know that when we look at Jesus, we can not only be made new, but also one day we have the hope that we're going to be in a world where all things will be made new. And all sad things will come in true. And the book of Revelation says that God will be like the sun And in the radiance of his glory, we will experience finally and fully everything that we have been longing for.